following episode contains subject matter that may be triggering for some people, including non-graphic mentions of murder, suicide, racism, abuse, or sexual assault, and may contain foul language. This episode is presented in as accurate a manner as possible for educational purposes with the intention of raising awareness of the cases mentioned. It is not intended to make accusations, only to point out data patterns. If you have information on any of these cases, please contact Crime Stoppers Canada at 1-800-222-TIPS. That's 1-800-222-8477, or visit canadiancrimestoppers.org to submit a tip electronically. Don't stay silent. Your information might save a life. In 2010, sociologist Kristen Gilchrist examined the way Native and white missing women were presented in media, and the results, while not shocking in nature, are horrifying in their statistics. White women were described in glowing terms, while the Indigenous victims got little more than name, rank, and serial number, and it was often implied, though not outright stated, that something about their location, actions, or mere existence had contributed to their disappearance. The white victims were mentioned in more than five times the newspaper articles and received longer, more detailed stories than their native counterparts. Even where the indigenous women were described positively, they quote, lacked the same kind of personal stories, anecdotes, and memories, end quote. To quote Gilchrist, the lack of coverage to missing or murdered Aboriginal women appears to suggest that their stories are not dramatic or worthy enough to tell, that Aboriginal women's victimization is too routine or ordinary, end quote. Author Jessica McDermott, whose book Highway of Tears was a major source for this series, especially this particular episode, continues the thought with, in the hierarchy of victims, in the pages of the nation's press, Indigenous women and girls have often been squarely at the bottom, regardless of their occupations, achievements, appearance, or circumstances. This hierarchy might suggest to offenders that Indigenous women can be targeted without repercussion because they are dismissed by society and receive considerably less attention from the public and from the police. Further, Indigenous girls are more likely to be called women or young women in reports, news bites, articles, and hearings, implying that they are more responsible for their actions and their ultimate demise than a white girl of the same age. This is something we'll see again and again in the cases of Monica Jack, Ramona Wilson, Helen Frost, Nicole Hoare, Roxanne Tiara, Tamara Chipman, and so many more. The way that these girls, girls, are presented by the media and addressed by courts and investigators victimizes them over and over again, once by the killers, again by investigators, and then again at trial, if there even is one, when the perpetrator typically receives a lighter sentence than if their victim had been a child or woman of a different race. This isn't a new phenomenon, and in the U.S. we see this pattern repeated with Black girls and women. When a Black child is victimized, she's inherently seen as more sexual and therefore somehow deserving of whatever fate befell her, and also somehow more responsible for whatever situation she found herself in, as though girls of 12 or 13 or younger intentionally entice predators, while a white girl of the same age is portrayed as an innocent victim. 
it's a disgusting double standard and it's not just found on the highway of tears. Alberta Gail Williams vanished without a trace on August 26, 1989. It was the last day of the summer, the last day of work for her and her sister in a Prince Rupert cannery. Originally from Catania, Alberta and Claudia lived and went to school in Vancouver, but traveled north in the summer to earn money like so many of their family and friends. The BC Packers plant pushed out over 10,000 cases a day, and day laborers lined up outside the front door each morning hoping for a place on the production line. It drew blue-collar workers from across the province of all races, but a large percentage of them were indigenous, like Alberta and her family. To celebrate a lucrative summer and the end of their relative freedom before school began, the two of them went out with some friends for drinks. Alberta was 24, Claudia just a few years older. Alberta was shy and quiet, but always willing to help. When the heat went out at her sister's apartment, she didn't hesitate before finding space for her on the couch. She was trusting and optimistic, but also very satisfied with her lot in life. Back in Vancouver, her fiancé was minding their one-bedroom apartment, and she had a waitressing job lined up and classes arranged for the fall. The sisters followed their friends and co-workers to Bogie's Cabaret, a dive bar located in the Prince Rupert Hotel. It was a type of place with dim lighting and a sticky floor, but the building had been around since 1917 and was a landmark nonetheless. Claudia arrived a little while after her sister and found Alberta in the middle of a group of friends laughing around a couple of tables. There wasn't a free spot in their group, so Claudia said hello, checking in with her little sister before wandering off to see who else was at the club. Every so often, the two of them would wave or make eye contact across the dance floor just to check in and make sure everything was okay. At closing time, Claudia got outside first and was chatting with a friend when Alberta ran up and grabbed her arm. Claudia, Claudia, come with me. We're going to a house party. When an ex of Claudia's came up to talk, she told her sister to wait while she told him to take a hike. When she turned around again, Alberta was gone. More than 100 people came out of bogeys as the bar closed, and Claudia didn't see her sister anywhere in the crowd. She waited on the sidewalk for a while, but there was no sign of her. She checked the hotel lobby and the bathroom, calling Alberta's name before going out to stand at the intersection of Highway 16 and 6th Streets, the two roads that she was most likely to take before giving up and going home. After all, Alberta was with friends. They had cousins and aunts and uncles that had all been at the cannery and in the bar. Alberta would be fine. While in Prince Rupert, Alberta had been staying with her mother, who was also working at the cannery. When she didn't come home the next morning, Rena called her eldest daughter to find out what was going on. Claudia explained about the house party and suggested Alberta had just stayed over. They knew everyone there and were related to half of them, so it was fine. But Rena called again a few hours later. Alberta still wasn't home. Rena began calling Alberta's friends, but no one had seen her since the night before. Finally, around dusk, she managed to get through to her husband, Lawrence, and their son, Francis, who were also seasonable laborers in the area working on a fishing boat. They'd been out of range all day, but finally the radio phone picked up a signal as they were about to dock for the night. Lawrence calmed his wife down, trying to tell her everything was fine. Just as Claudia had pointed out, they knew everyone. They'd been spending their summers at the Prince Rupert canneries for years. 
Alberta was a familiar face to everyone. There was no one around who would hurt her. She probably just got carried away with some friends and forgot to check in. She was 24, after all, a grown woman. She could make her own decisions. If Lawrence and Francis were worried, they put their concerns aside in the dark. The area they were fishing in was treacherous after dark, so they dropped anchor and settled in for the night. Everything would be fine in the morning. As dawn broke through the mist on the river, Lawrence realized they'd gone off course the day before and were in an unfamiliar part of the river. It took several hours to get home. When they did, Alberta was still nowhere to be seen. More than 36 hours since she'd last been seen, her parents went to the RCMP and filed a missing persons report. This is the part of the story where we meet one of those good RCMP officers I mentioned a while back. Jessica McDermott's book goes into much greater detail on this, and there's also a podcast specifically about Alberta's disappearance, Missing and Murdered Alberta Williams, but I'm going to consolidate some of the details here just for the sake of time. Gary Kerr was a relatively new RCMP detective, but he had a bad feeling about Alberta's case when it landed on his desk. She wasn't a partier, she was responsible, and had no known vices. It just didn't make sense for her to go on a bender, and even less sense for her not to call her family at least once during that time when they were so close. He interviewed staff at the bar and as many patrons as he could track down. Eventually, he landed on the man hosting the house party Alberta had mentioned. The unnamed man was a distant relative of the Williams, but he was evasive and standoffish with police. It struck Detective Kerr as suspicious, but when dealing with the Native community, he was also well aware of the animosity that existed between them and the RCMP. Could it be he just didn't like Kerr's badge? Maybe. Or he could be hiding something. Despite hours of interviews, Kerr was never able to win the trust of the cannery employees. The summer season ended and they scattered to the four winds. Though he would continue to work on the case for another three years, he was eventually transferred to another detachment and had to leave Alberta and her family behind with no more clue to what had happened to her than the day her parents reported her missing. Well, except for one. About a month later, on September 25th, a group of hikers found a body tied up and partially covered, face down in a ditch along Highway 16 near some railroad tracks. Kerr and his partner arrived by 3.45 p.m., and after uncovering her face, they were able to immediately identify Alberta. Though no formal ID had yet been made, the two detectives, with permission of their superior, made the decision to inform the family immediately to put their worries to rest. Both of them had been deeply impacted by the Williams family and their desperate search for their missing daughter. It wasn't the answer they wanted, but they knew they needed to provide whatever closure they could. Eventually, the body was officially confirmed to be Alberta. While they waited on the lab results, they searched Highway 16 for miles in each direction. Found in only a blouse and bra, they hunted for up to 18 hours a day for her missing clothes and belongings, emptying trash cans, wading through flooded ditches, and digging under piles of brush. No clues were ever found. DNA wasn't yet an option. The police had a strong suspect, but not enough evidence to make an arrest. This only fed the distrust the local community had in the RCMP. Why hadn't they found more, done more? Why was the killer still walking free? It's a story that is tragic from all sides, and one that I wish we had an answer for today. 
Hopefully, the EPANA investigation, which has taken over Alberta's case, will reveal more clues and potentially some DNA, but so far we don't know anything about what they've discovered, if anything. Nineteen eighty nine was by far the most dangerous year on the Highway of Tears. Between the four members of the Jack family, Alberta, and our final two victims of this episode, the highway claimed seven lives across four cases. However, the final victims of this black year again fall into the category of ghosts where not much is known about them. Cecilia Nickel is a prime example. She was an older teen, somewhere between 15 and 18, and went missing sometime in October of that year. She was never seen again, and no remains have ever been found. Cecilia's name isn't even correct in a lot of sources, sometimes misspelling her first name with three I's and no E. Her middle name might be listed as Anne or Mary. She might have vanished at 15 or possibly 18. She could have vanished from Vancouver Island or just somewhere in the city of Vancouver, which spills onto the mainland. The details change probably because Cecilia was a native girl living a high-risk lifestyle. What we do know is that she hadn't been in Vancouver long, moving to the city in early August to live with her mother. Things seemed to have been fraught between them, however, and two months later, Cecilia was on the street. According to her mother, she left of her own accord. An unnamed family member stated she moved to Vancouver Island after leaving her mother, but this was never confirmed. According to an Instagram post by her cousin, Dealey Nickel, quote, she had the best smile in the entire world and this gentle, soft giggle when she laughed. She was always so loving and I felt safe with her around. I knew she would always protect me, end quote. Originally from Smithers, Cecilia was not the only girl in her family to go missing, but we'll be covering her cousin, Delphine, in the next episode. Because she went missing from Vancouver, Cecilia is sometimes left off the list of Highway 16 victims, but due to her ties to Smithers and Delphine, I feel it's only right to include her. Again, we'll talk more about Smithers in another episode, but in researching this series, I feel like that town must be cursed. They seem to have more highways, Highway of Tears victims per capita than any other town in British Columbia. The last victim I want to discuss tonight is Marnie Blanchard, an 18-year-old from Prince George. Unlike Cecilia in Alberta, Marnie was white. Neither Cecilia nor Marnie are on the EPANA list. On November 22, 1989, Marnie went to the Rock Pit Cabaret. Around 2 a.m., she left the club and got into a gray Toyota or Nissan pickup with a white canopy. The driver had shoulder-length black hair. She hesitated before getting in, but eventually did. They drove west on 2nd Avenue, after which they weren't seen again. A few weeks later, on December 11th, skiers found a jawbone on an unmarked road about 10 minutes away north of the city. Police searched the area and recovered human remains that had been disturbed by scavengers. The skeletonized remains were examined and determined through dental records to be Marnie. There were knife wounds on the bones, and the clothing, which had been piled up nearby, had been cut from the body. 
It's unclear how the police came to find Brian Arp as a suspect, but he's another character we'll be discussing in a later episode. On April 18th, they searched a gray pickup belonging to his common-law wife. Inside the truck, they found a 4-inch double-edged hunting knife similar to the one that killed Marnie. Also in the truck were purple fibers smirching her clothes and a silver ring later identified as hers. While he did give biological samples willingly, they did not match the multiple samples found on her clothing, but these were tested only for blood type and a visual match, not for DNA. When no definite match could be found, he was released from custody after six months in jail. He'd later go on to kill again before being rearrested and convicted of both murders in 1995 with the help of DNA evidence. We'll talk more about him in episode 12, I promise. As the cases we cover here get more recent, there are more and more ties between them. I know I hinted at a lot of things that are still to come, so be patient. We aren't going to leave any of these ghosts behind. The Ghosts of Highway 16 is a production of Not Magic Studios and is intended for educational purposes and to raise awareness of crime, especially those involving missing and murdered Indigenous women. If you have any information on the cases presented, please contact Crime Stoppers Canada at 1-800-222-TIPS. That's 1-800-222-8477 or visit CanadianCrimeStoppers.org to submit a tip electronically. If you would like more information on this episode or any of the cases presented in this series, please visit 16ghosts.com for photos, sources, and a full transcript of this and every other episode. If you would like to support the podcast, please share it with friends. Any financial contributions should go to the Indigenous charity of your choice. For a list of recommendations, please visit our website. Thank you for listening.